Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Episode 7, Be Wary of Folly, where we will be looking at chapters 15 through 17 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of folly. For those of you who have been listening steadily for the last six episodes, I'm going to repeat myself. For those of you who are new here, welcome. In this podcast, each week we will be examining a section of the book The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Hopefully one that would make Master Elodin proud. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Now before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second of all, our discussion naturally assumes that either A, you have already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the short story, The Slow Regard of Silent Things, and the novella, The Lightning Tree. Or B, you don't mind spoilers. Simple as that. Beyond this point, there will be spoilers. You have been warned. Though, as always, to start things off, we will be doing a 45-second recap of the section we have decided to read. It is Phoenix's turn today to provide our recap. Also, there will be audio of Will eating something that has cherry in it, and he picked it out himself. Tell us what you picked. I picked a cherry and hazelnut chocolate bar. Sounds terrible. Sounds lovely, and I get to have the rest of it. I guess, yeah. If you'd like to see the recording of him eating this wonderful, wonderful chocolate bar, it will be up on our Patreon for all to see. You guys are in for a treat. And so am I. You know, I really would have made you do it today, except today is your birthday. Thank you. I figured that, you know, being an evil wench is not a good idea. Well, I wouldn't have called you a wench. I would have called you evil, but not a wench. Moving on. There is a chance that I might be able to get some raspberry-flavored retribution here if you happen to go over your 45-second allotment in your recap of this week's events. And unlike me, you've decided not to do it in rhyming couplets. Correct. In this particular case, we have a lot to go over, and I'm going to have to rush to squeeze it all in. Audience, wish me luck. Raspberries. All right, I got my timer up. You ready? In three, two, one, go. Ben leaves the troop to run a brewery and marry a widow. The troop throws a big going-away birthday party for Ben and Quoth, respectively. Arladin is goaded into playing part of his song about Lanray. Ben leaves Quoth a book that Quoth hates as a birthday present. Months go by, and sad Quoth is sad and lonely. A tree falls in the fort, er, across the road and forces the troop to stop for the day. Quoth's parents send him on a nonsense quest so that they can have some alone time, and while he is gone, the Chandrian come and kill his entire troop. Cinder almost kills Quoth, but Haliax is spooked into running away with his buddies in tow, and it's probably by the Amir. 
and Quoth almost burns to death in the wagon after falling asleep surrounded by lit candles. Another interlude sees a horrified Bast pitying Quoth and later Quoth succumbing to his grief. Time! Damn it! In private! <laughs> Raspberry flavored revenge! Can I have beer? We'll see. Damn it! If a tree falls in the forest and the Chandrian aren't around to burn your family, did it really fall? <laughs> As a programming note, in between having recorded my failed attempt to do a 45 second recap of this very dense and long section that we have chosen to do by like a second, not bitter, nope. In between that and now, we have received the most amazing thing ever. We are part of a book club called Life's Library, the proceeds of which go to help partners in health who are helping in Sierra Leone with trying to reduce the rates of maternal mortality. In that most recent shipment, we received a bag of loose leaf tea that happens to contain raspberries. Sounds delicious. For one of us. So rather than beer, I will be drinking that. We will be doing a video recording of this and an audio recording. The audio of which will be showing up on next week's pod. The video of which, so that you can see our lovely facial expressions, will be on our Patreon page. Free for anyone who wishes to go see it. And now, on to our section. Starts with chapter 15, Distractions and Farewells. There's some really important central character work here in this that I think gives us some crucial insight to the man that Kvothe grows into being. This chapter sees Ben leave the troop for a simple life with a wife and a brewery. It's kind of bittersweet, but with all of the foreshadowing, we knew it was coming. We just didn't know when. All things told, that seems like a pretty happy ending. Hopefully he does get a happy ending. It would be nice if at least one character in this book got a happy ending. <laughs> so we also see more of Quoth being kind of an elitist regarding his troop. He does this nearly every time he talks about his troop. He thinks no wrong can come from his troop. No wrong can come from his family. And I think that that's a sort of blind spot or folly where in this instance, he says that troopers, when they perform for the general public, they're probably good, but they're not great. They're not trying to impress one another. But for Abanthi's going away party and Quoth's birthday party, which have been combined into one, they are doing their best to show off for one another. Sometimes with really, really bad results, like catching oneself on fire. Yeah, it's sort of like how people talk about their mom's home cooking when they're little kids, even if their moms maybe weren't actually that good. And granted, Quoth is 12, so it's perfectly natural for him to have those kind of blinders on there. I think we all have similar blind spots. I'd also like to point out that this is the first instance of a cloak that Quoth gets. Cloaks, especially ones with little pockets, show up a lot throughout the two books. There's a bit of vanity in it as well. He likes the way it billows. So as we're looking at this through a lens of folly, 
what I'm about to go over is more about folly that Kvothe falls into later on, but the seeds of which show up here. During his party, his parents sing a song called The Lay of Sir Sabian Tralliard, which later on Kvothe sings at the Aeolian to earn his talent pipes. Even here, he says that it is a very taxing thing to perform. He's only heard it all the way through a few times, and yet he has perfect memory of it, and he can play it when he's older perfectly. I'm calling a little bit of bullshit on this. I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here. So in Mike Nelson and Connor Lestauka's great book club podcast, 372 pages will never get back. They talk about how in Ready Player One, the main protagonist has this, I'd memorized it perfectly thing, which no one ever does. And this kind of feels similar here. And granted, because this is a first person narrative, Quoth is allowed to be full of shirt. <laughs> and after the song plays, Arladin is then requested to give everyone a preview of his song about Lanray, his song of the Chandrian. One of the things I noticed about this was that the act of singing the song and composing the song was an act of folly and particularly hubris on the part of Arlenin. But it's also itself a song about folly and hubris. The character of Lanray himself is someone who prizes his own martial prowess above all else and thinks that it gives him the right to cheat death. And then after his wife passes, he ends up making a devil's bargain of sorts that ends up transforming him into this tortured creature. Presumably Haliax. Right. And that is itself an act of folly. He is so convinced of his own importance and his, the importance of his own pain that he puts it above the concerns of everyone else. So there's that tragic folly there. Speaking a little more about the song, one of the lines that jumped out to me is Through the Doors of Death. There's a lot of mention of doors, doors of stone, lackless door, few other doors. And I just wanted to put a pin in that. Not for any particular reason, just that one stood out to me. To continue on through our lens. As we've stated before, every time that Quoth speaks of his parents, he imagines them as perfect. He shows folly in his memory of them from when he was 12 and younger. He doesn't imagine them as complex people with complex pasts. He doesn't imagine them as people with thoughts and feelings other than what is centered around him. Another thing, we mentioned how he's able to perfectly memorize Sersavian, and he's also able to perfectly know how much money he's had in his purse at any given instant but he can't remember what he said to Ben before he left, but he's sure it was inadequate. Interesting point. <laughs> this is like a foundational send-off to someone who is probably one of the most important people in his life up at this point, in the non-parent division. And all he can say is, I can't remember what I said to him before we left. That just seemed kind of funny to me. Kvothe also mentions that it would be a great long time before he saw Avanthe again. Years. We as an audience have not yet seen Avanthe again. Here's hoping it's a happy reunion. I also would like to point out that as a birthday present, Avanthe leaves Kvothe a book 
called Rhetoric and Logic that Foth hates. This continues on throughout the books where we get the sense that Foth truly despises the contents of said book. When he gets to the university and his class with him is concerning rhetoric and logic. He and him have such an antagonistic relationship and it goes to completely validate to Kvothe's detriment his hatred of rhetoric and logic. I see this as Abinthi giving Kvothe the gift of learning to get through things that aren't pleasant or fun. That's something that every student goes through. There's a class you have to take and you hate it, but you just have to do it. You have to pass it. And Kvothe seems determined not to do it. I also like how rhetoric and logic to Kvothe is similar to Kellum Tentore for Best. Yes. To end out this chapter, we also see that the note that Ben has left for Kvothe says, Remember your father's song, Be Wary of Folly. Folly may have a few different meanings. I agree with that. It takes many forms. A couple of other things that just jumped out at me before we continue on. Quoth is now coming up to the realization that if he does attend the university, that he will have to give up performing. But he talks about certain performances that he remembers that he thinks of fondly. Playing the bratty young noble son in Three Pennies for Wishing, he uses that as a skill later on. No one to sing with? He'll use that later on, too. He also does end up finding a sort of performing life at the Aeolian. That brings us to chapter 16, which is called Hope. Which is sort of a bittersweet title. And here we see him practicing juggling and playing Lady Raytheel and Swineherd and the Nightingale, japes and tumbling and things like that, which are also known as follies because they're sort of trifling amusements. This is also where his mother begins to instruct him in courtly etiquette, which initially he thinks is kind of foolish, but it is important because people care about it. She also touches a bit on Arladin's weaknesses for really the first time, where he tends to make up for his lack of proper etiquette, mostly just by being charming, which is all well and good, but if all you want to do is get by, that's not much. Meanwhile, we also get a rather amusing bit where, as part of their training, Lorian and Quoth make up a song called The Pontifex Always Ranks Under a Queen, and they end up laughing about it for about a month, but they are forbidden from sharing it with Arladin because he might play it in front of the wrong people and get everyone in trouble. So Arladin is prone to folly in this way. We also see that even as Kvothe loves his parents and they love him, they do occasionally need some alone time. After they get stopped at yet another downed tree, Kvothe's parents sent him on a little errand to gather some wild sage, mostly just to get him out of the wagon so that they can have some time together. And while he is away, this is where tragedy strikes. Both says that he hopes that the last few hours that his parents spent together were spent well, that they weren't spent on small things, but rather on loving each other. 
And then he drops this blunt statement of they are just as dead either way. It's a tough section here, and this is where he comes face to face with the Chandrian for the first time. Of note, Quoth never says, and then I saw the Chandrian, but he is exposed to their signs. So he sees blue flame, crumbling iron, crumbling wood, a man with black eyes, black goat's eyes, excuse me. He also sees a man with a shadow for a face. This section is a very well-written example of shock. Quoth recognizes that there are certain things wrong. He recognizes that people in his troop are dead on the ground. He recognizes that things are on fire. He recognizes that food is burning, the wagons are burning, the tents are burning. The sentence, I felt as if I was trying to think through syrup, and I've been there. Yeah, this section reads like a series of extremely graphic vignettes that are very loosely connected because you get the sense that Quoth is kind of wandering in a daze through all of this flashing on these very vivid images of the people that he loves in various states of destruction and death. He basically is searching for anything that he can focus on that's normal. He looks at the kettle and he's like, oh, hey, look, there's potatoes in here. This is normal. I can focus on that. I can process that. And then he focuses on Shandy's body and it's pretty horrific. He's wandering aimlessly through all of this. Honestly, I I really strongly empathize with this. I don't know how anyone would handle a horror like that. And finally, he starts hearing voices for the first time. This is where he first encounters Cinder. At this point, I'd like to zoom out a little bit here and point back to a particular sword that is hanging on a mounting board in the Waystone. We'd been speculating about it, and I just want to compare that with the description of Cinder's sword which was pale and elegant, and when it moved, it cut the air with a brittle sound. It reminded me of the quiet that settles on the coldest days in winter when it hurts to breathe and everything is still. His eyes were like his sword, and neither one reflected the light of the fire or the setting sun. So that's a little bit of foreshadowing. I think that the sword that is hanging on the wall is maybe Cinder's sword. I don't know, but I think it would be cool to find out when the next book comes out. The description of the sword that is hanging in the waystone. It shone a dull gray white in the room's autumn light. It had the appearance of a new sword. It was not notched or rusted. There were no bright scratches skittering along its dull gray side. But though it was unmarred, it was old. Another description. He then set the sword on the mounting board. Its gray-white metal shone against the dark row behind it. While the handle could be seen, it was dark enough to be almost indistinguishable from the wood. The word beneath it, black against blackness, seemed to reproach. Folly. When Cinder sees Quoth, he initially says, sort of in this wolf-dressed-his-grandmother sort of thing, says, young man, wherever are your parents? And then laughs cruelly, makes a joke about it. And then says, someone's parents have been singing entirely the wrong sorts of songs. So that was more of Arladin's folly there. 
But Cinder himself is not immune to folly, as we see going forward, because he takes a bit too much time in playing with Quoth, almost mocking him and tormenting him. It's kind of like a cat playing with a mouse before the mouse can get away. It's petty cruelty for cruelty's sake, and it's a sadistic sort of thing. And this is where we get our first encounter with Lord Haliax, who we suspect is Lanray. And Haliax says, just get it over with. Close our loose end here. And then Haliax falls into a little bit of villainous monologuing himself, which also prevents Cinder from closing the loose end that is Quoth as he's chiding the rest of the Chandrian for taking too much pleasure in their cruelties and ignoring their actual purpose. And he spends a lot of time essentially forcing Cinder to repeat his fealty and understand just how much power Haliax holds over him. He says, you are too fond of your little cruelties, all of you. I am glad I decided to accompany you today. You are straying, indulging in whimsy. Some of you seem to have forgotten what it is we seek, what we wish to achieve. Not that he's going to tell us. And just as they're getting ready to finally take care of Kvoth, Haliak says, they come quickly to me. And then he teleports them all out of there. Who they are in this case, we don't know. We can assume it's the Amir. Could also be the Sith. There's a number of groups that it could be. But again, it's this folly on both Haliax's and Cinder's part that lets Kvoth survive. That's why he lives through this encounter, when by all rights he should be dead. He then, in a state of utter shock, lights every lamp and candle he can find and goes to sleep in his parents' wagon, only for the whole thing to burn down. He then escapes with his father's loot and wanders off into the forest playing just to ease his pain. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little misty here. The language used around this, I clutched it to my body. Quoth is using words that are very desperate. They have a very strong meaning. You could say held it, but he clutched it. It's like a panic reaction. And an understandable one at that. I played until my fingers bled on the strings. Both you and I play stringed instruments. Neither one of us has played until our fingers bled. That takes some doing, and he plays until his arm is sore. His fretting hand is bloody, and his strumming hand is so sore it can barely move. And to get through the calluses that he's very likely got built up. That's hours. Hours and hours of playing there. Until he fell asleep. And we're brought back into our framing device. This little framing device is, I think, rather lovely. Because, first of all, Bast is immediately empathetic towards Reshi. His friend, his teacher, his master. And even as Quoth is shrugging it off, you can tell that it's coming from a very genuine place. And this is one of the things I think people love about Bast as a character, is because he does react so immediately and emotionally to the things around him. Maybe not always predictably, but his emotions are always honest. 
Here, it's one of genuine concern and compassion for a friend. In this moment of vulnerability, he also reaches out a sort of olive branch to Chronicler, who earlier they had been at each other's throats, each intending to kill the other, the efficacy of which <laughs> of their efforts might be in debate. But this moment here is a humanizing one. Even as Bast is not technically human, his reaction helps him to humanize his concern, and it makes Chronicler view him in a different light as well. It's here where they're both admitting fault, which speaks of the clarity that can come with folly. It is said that fools are the only ones who can speak honestly. There's some wisdom in it. They end up making a genuine peace there. And this is also where we see them starting to align their goals with one another and seeing Quoth become more than just a shadow of his former self. We end out this interlude with Quoth giving in to his sorrow and grief, bottling it all up as a folly, continuing this stoic facade, this idea that he is without emotion, I think is folly. And even as no one is looking, he still feels the need to hide his face as he's sobbing, even though there's no one around. Not asking for help, not relying upon his friends or best. This is a beautiful little interlude. I'm sorry, I'm getting misty. <laughs> Aw, you're all weepy. I am. There are a few things that I love. One is when people are emotionally honest with others. Two, it's when friends show concern for one another. I love that. I'm a friendship shipper, and <laughs> I'm never not going to be. Yeah, I'm a little weepy right now just because it's beautiful. Aww. The section is very heavy, and no matter how many times I listen to it or read it, it still affects me. I lost my dad when I was very young. It sticks with you. And we'll see throughout the rest of the story how much the loss of both family, both parents, affects his future. Now we're coming to the point where we will do our Phronemos. It's Will's turn. Thank you, Phoenix. This one was a tricky one. I was trying to figure out who our Phronemos was, and at the end of the day, I really had to come back to Bast, of all people, as our Phronemos. Bast is oftentimes presented as impetuous and a little silly and a little strange. But here we see him acting with genuine empathy, for another person in pain. And I don't want to live in a world where that isn't wisdom. I think that's a reaction anyone should have. I'm getting weepy again. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> to bring just a tiny bit of levity into this, you need to finish reading The Lightning Tree. Yes, I do. <laughs> you may or may not feel differently towards Vast after that. But in this instance, I think he's exhibiting our wisdom, which is to find empathy for other people in pain. And then this also leads him to be in a position where he can make peace with Chronicler. And they emerge as partners in this enterprise. They might not be true friends, but they're getting there. Right. And I love that. And I love seeing friendships blossom, especially unlikely ones. As I say, I'm a friendship shipper. I think that that's very sweet. And I really like that you've decided to 
look past the facade, the glamour, if you will, that Bast puts up. Well, and I think this is also one where he's, in many ways, dropping that facade. The carefree, innocent youth who's just out to make trouble and have fun. This is him showing genuine compassion and care for someone else, and we could all stand to do that. I'm not saying that Bast is always wise, but this is an instance of him being wise. So, find that and celebrate it. Next, we're going to come to our interesting facts of the week, and it is my turn. I really hope that I don't need to have two things with raspberries. You know, either way I win. Either I get to have more raspberries in the house, or I get an interesting fact. I can't lose. All right, Phoenix, interest me. I shall do my best. You made me have to get a whole new set of interesting facts. You made me run through all of them last time that I did it. Sometimes I'm exacting. Imp. (laughs) And you're not? Never. You have the cutest little look on your face. Imp. Alrighty. My turn for an interesting fact. Here's hoping you like it. For most of the time that I do these, I like to pull at least a little bit of inspiration out of the book. And in this particular instance, it's Quoth's birthday, which sparked a memory in me of something that I'd heard. It seems unlikely that in a small random sampling of people, two or more people would share a birthday. But even in our friend group from Spokane, we know of at least two instances of shared birthdays, including me with another person. It turns out that if you take a random group of 44 people, say the number of former presidents, there is a 93% likelihood that two will share a birthday, at least the same month and day. And they do. I don't remember who. Sorry, I did not write that down. Oops. The more interesting thing to me is that it actually only takes 23 people in a group to get an over 50% chance that at least two of them will share a birthday. Sounds like a small amount of people, right? Right. Turns out that that's because, as a species, we're actually really bad at figuring out probability and chance. But the math does work. Well, and it fits, because I actually share a birthday with two friends and my grandmother. So I'm not surprised by this at all. But is it interesting? Not really. Next. Making me run through everything. All right, I have a couple more left to try. Is it cheating if I ask you which topic you would find more interesting? Yes. Then I'll just go with the next one. So can we agree that a fresh steak that has never been frozen is the best texture of all steaks possible? I think so. Okay. What if you only have a frozen steak? Would it be better to thaw it first and then cook it or cook it from frozen? My instinct would say that you'd want to thaw it first. Okay. Turns out that cooking from frozen winds up with a better cooked, juicier steak. When compared side by side, if you cut a steak in half, freeze both halves, and then allow one to thaw thoroughly, and the other one you cook from frozen, the one that is cooked from frozen will get a sear at the same rate as the one that was thawed but it won't cook into the meat nearly as much. 
The frozen steak will also lose less moisture than the thawed one during the cooking process. So once you stick it in the oven, it will take longer to cook through, but it will result in a juicier steak. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, I enjoy a good steak. I'll let you have that one. It's interesting. Yay. Now it is time for us to share seven words from the book and seven words from life. This week I have words from the book and you have words from life. My seven words are, he's fine so long as he's busy. That just really spoke to me. I know that oftentimes when I'm going through something, staying busy helps. Let's me process whatever I'm going through unconsciously instead of just dwelling on it. Who said it and who is it about? This is something that Bast said about Quoth in his guise's coat, noting that when Coat or Quoth rather was very sad at the end of sharing his story for the chapter, he started going about his daily chores, making lunch, getting wood chopped and all that stuff. And I can empathize with that. When I'm having trouble with something, sometimes the only thing that helps is just to feel like I'm able to do something, whether that's my professional work or something around the house or just something that keeps me busy as opposed to just sitting. It's just something that occurred to me. I think that that's a way that a lot of people process grief or uncomfortableness. I know sometimes when I feel antsy or nervous or worried, I will start making myself busy, but not busy. I will start doing small things. I will notice all the things that I need to get done, or I will notice all the things that are slightly off skew and try to fix them. It won't be what I'm actually nervous or anxious about, but I will try to keep myself actively doing something. Well, like a while ago, a close friend of mine passed and I would just have these waves of grief that would just come out of nowhere. Well, not nowhere, but they would just kind of come up unexpectedly. And the only way that I could really handle those was to throw myself into my work or my hobbies and things like that. It was the only thing that really kept it from just overwhelming me. Well, take it from that to something a little more lighthearted, because my seven words are, I can't call you young one anymore. Is any more really one word? Mm. Was Dexia Brain is lying to me? I'm just looking this up. I thought anymore was a word. I literally thought it was a word. Actually, no, it is a word. So anymore is one is an adverb that refers to time. Yeah. Whereas anymore in two refers to quantity. Would you like anymore? Right, that's what I thought. Okay, no, that's cool. No need for me to get pedantic. But you are pedantic. Otherwise, this podcast would not exist. <laughs> We're both pedantic. Let's be real. That's a very sweet one. Yes, you can't call me young one. I can't call you young one again until next July when I am officially older than you again. Well, I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts. Good. And with that, we come to the end of our podcast for this week. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time as we discuss chapters 18 and 19 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of self-care. At this time, we would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring.
Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. And if you would like to help support us, become a patron on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. So one more day above the roses. The fork. You do that for. Foot. Yes, foot. Foot tickle. What? Say fork. Fork. Foot.